Hello and welcome to day 26 of OT with DA. Welcome to Instagram Live. A big welcome and shout out to those of you that are viewing on YouTube. We are more than one third of the way through our 75 day reading challenge through a large portion of the Old Testament. We've already put Genesis behind us and we are now well and truly in the book of Exodus. And again, today is day 26 of our 75-day challenge, and uh, I'm flying solo tonight, just me, nobody on my right, nobody on my left, but good news, tomorrow night, so Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday, I will have my good friend Sylvia Bacchiocchi will be with me, and uh, I'll tell you more about that in just a second, but first of all, welcome to everybody, so glad you're here. Let me welcome a few of you. Yo, Victor Mills says, God bless from New York. Hello, Cassandra, also from New York. Hey, Jim, great to see you. Love you, man. Hello, Angel. Hello, Marco. Hello, Andy. Hello, Allison. Oh, Allison. Howdy doody, y'all. Your art is amazing, by the way. Uh, hello, Chuck Baby. Hello, Jason Shives. Good to see you, brother. Hello, Hannah. I love you, girl. Brady, hello. Reiner, thanks for coming on last night. That was great. Stone Doctor, New York City, Cold Construction, hello, Porter Six Pack, hello, Coach Warrenell, hello, Cherry One Dread, good night. I don't know if that means you're leaving, I hope you're staying. Uh, let's see, Gay Main 44, hello, keeps getting up, oh, I like that. Is Sylvia related to Samuel? Yes, Samuel Bakioki was her father-in-law, and we'll ask her about that when she comes, you can learn more about her. Uh, she's an amazing person. Her husband uh, will also be with us, and uh, he he'll we'll bring him in. Hopefully, he'll consent to be brought in at the end, like Alice did, and Johnny and Hannah did at the end to tell us his word. So we'll we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So hello everybody, hello Larry, Mister Larry twenty six from Apopka, Florida, comma Anderson from Calgary, Canada. Hope you're staying warm up there. Pura Vida, SLP, SLP here, great to see you. Deb Snyder, Burn Lundy. Whoa, FC300 from China. Hi, Dave from China. Well, hi from Colorado. All right, Emily Nicole, Denise, Jen something, didn't see the last name there. Sonia, it's coming in so fast. Hello, everyone. So glad you're here. I hope you had an amazing day. I had a fantastic day today because my wife and I went rock climbing. And we didn't go rock climbing for the whole day, but we went this morning into the early afternoon and uh, I was able to climb really, really well. I'm really fit right now, really strong right now. My fingers are strong. I just feel I'm climbing as good as I've ever climbed in my whole life. I've been climbing since I was a teenager and I'm 49 years old and I'm climbing roots that are as hard as the roots I climbed when I was in my early 20s. So I'm pumped, man. I had a great day and Violetta was belaying me and she also climbed very well. She's actually incredibly strong as well. She's pretty and strong. Hi, babe. I hope you're watching. Um, so anyway, I had a great day today. I hope you had an awesome day. We Okay, a few quick announcements. We've got a lot to cover. Our chapter today is chapter 25, The Exodus, right? Which is just kind of another way of saying the exit, right? The outgoing. And uh, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in just a moment. So first of all, uh, tomorrow night, we'll be back same time, same place. Hey, Megan, great to see you. I'll be in Australia in March, and it would be awesome to be able to see you, sister. 
Um, Victor Mill says this chapter is fire. You are not wrong about that. Um, so anyway, tomorrow night, Friday night, same time, same place, seven o'clock mountain time. Bam. Then on Saturday, this is going to be so great. On Saturday at one o'clock mountain time. Okay. One o'clock mountain time on Saturday. That's when we've done, I think two of our supplemental sessions. This is going to be our fourth supplemental session. Okay, this Saturday, and it's going to be with Sylvia, and she's going to be talking to us about her research that she is doing for her doctoral thesis. And the the title of that supplemental session, are you ready for this? So good, is Exodus a love story? Yes, that's exactly right. I'm I'm pumped. I cannot wait. Exodus a love story, and it'll be Sylvia and myself, and we'll be talking about her research about the book of Exodus, about the shape of covenant and what God is doing. And I'm not going to say any more than that, except to say, you are going to be in, if you love Bible study, you are going to be in for a proper treat this Saturday, 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Okay, then that evening, 7 p.m., we will do our OT with the A. And that'll be, I guess, chapter 20, it doesn't matter. It'll be that the chapter that is that day. Then, now this is important, on Sunday... Rather than being in the evening, because we're working around uh, Sylvia's schedule and, and their travel schedule, um, we're going to meet at 1 o'clock, 1 o'clock on Sunday. So it'll be the same time, Saturday and Sunday. Saturday, the supplemental session is at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Then Sunday, the main session, the OT with DA, will be at uh, that time as well. And that way, if you're interested in watching the Super Bowl, we'll be done well before that. And if you're not a Super Bowl person, that's fine. Uh, probably you have Sunday off. Hopefully you have Sunday off. Hopefully you have Saturday off. And then if you're back to work on the first day of the week, that's fine. But we'll be here 1 p.m. Mountain Time. So that's the weekend. That's what the weekend looks like. It's going to be absolutely epic. So I'll have Sylvia with us, let's see, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I could be a little bit wrong about this, but I think it's uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday by myself. And then Pastor Nathan Renner, my best friend in the world, showing up to be with us Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe even Monday. I don't remember his flight schedule. And I might just kidnap him and keep him here for the rest of OT with DA. Probably not since he pastors the church and he has a family, but he's going to be with us for several days. That's going to be amazing. Now, I thought it would be as good a time as any to remind ourselves of the goals. You might remember on the opening session, we talked about the goals, four goals. This is sort of my goals. When I sat down to think about OT with DA, what did I hope we would accomplish now that we're a third of the way through? It feels like a good time to remind ourselves of what our goals are. And so here we go. Number one, two, three, four, very quickly. Number one, to know and to love God and to better understand him and his actions. A lot of people are absolutely, you know, intimidated by the Old Testament. They find the Old Testament terrifying and they find the God of the Old Testament terrifying. So one of the things that we're really trying to do in our OT with DA study, and Patriarchs and Prophets does such a marvelous job of this, is to better understand why God behaved in the way that he did so that we can know him, we can love him, and as we see in today's chapter, we can worship him. Okay, number two, to learn how to read and how to understand the Old Testament and thus to not be intimidated by. How do we read this book? And there's all these great little signs, great little indicators, or maybe signs is the wrong word there, all these great little signposts and great little indicators along the way, the chiefest of which up to this point, I think, has been the Abrahamic covenant. 
that the Abrahamic covenant is the lens through which the whole of Scripture is viewed, all of it, right? You do have Genesis 1 to 11, which is a preamble, right, where we go through the, uh, let's see, creation, fall, flood, tower. That's sort of preamble, very important preamble. I mean, like, in many ways, Genesis 1 to 3 is the formation, is the, is the foundation, rather, of everything that follows. But then as soon as we get to Genesis 12 and onward, we are now dealing with the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham, I will bless you. You will have descendants like the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'll give you land and descendants. And now we're right in the middle of that, right? The children of Israel have been in Egypt. They are going, they're going to be brought out of Egypt in our chapter today to go to a land. Let's see. Uh, Instagram was just asking me a question. Can you guys still hear me? Let me know if you can still hear me, because Instagram just paused for a moment and was asking me some question. It seemed important. I'm looking for some indication on there. This thing's like flashing. What does this mean? Never had this happen before. No sound. Okay, no sound. Let me, let me get out of here. Bam, bam. Discard video, discard video, restart video. There we go. And we're back, hopefully. All right. Hello, Instagram. Don't know what happened there. That problem was, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Can you hear me? Is anybody there? Okay. Okay. There we go. People are signing on. Can somebody give me the thumbs up that you can hear what I'm saying? Good. Okay. We're off to the races. So anyway, number two, to learn how to read and understand the Old Testament, to not be intimidated by it. We've seen a number of lenses a number of signposts along the way, none of them more important than the Abrahamic promise and covenant. Number three, to not only know that Jesus is the hero of the New Testament, of the universe, right, of reality, but to know why he's the hero. And the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. It has been said, and I really like this, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, okay? So if we're going to understand the fullness of Jesus' words, his teaching, his identity, his mission, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we're going to understand that much better if we have this Old Testament foundation and backdrop. And then finally, number four, to be transformed, to experience repentance and the freedom and joy that comes from obedience. Okay, are we there? Those are our four reasons. One, two, three, four. We're doing OT with DA. We're in chapter 25, and we're going to have a quick prayer, and then we're into this. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this amazing book. Father, the Bible is just amazing. It's incredible. It's giving us access to things that we could have never otherwise known. And so, Father, I want to pray that you'll just continue to be with, continue to be with us in our journey. I pray, Father, that there will be uh, a lot of clarity, not just tonight, but through the whole of OT with DA, that people will be like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. In fact, just yesterday, I'm reminded that, that, that Alice was in the room, and when we said something in our session, she said, I never knew that. I've always wondered about that, and now it makes sense. And so, Father, I just pray that those moments of clarity would be happening for the speaker, for all of the listeners, those that are tuning in live, those that are listening in the days and weeks to come, and those that will listen well into the future. Father, I pray that these videos would be uh, powerfully used by your Spirit to glorify you, that people may know you, worship you, love you, and as we're going to learn today, follow you. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right. Can you hear me? Everything looks all right. So today's chapter is titled The Exodus, chapter 25. And I thought this was a very um, powerful chapter, but I also thought it was kind of a simple chapter. I don't know if anybody else sort of got that vibe. Like, I appreciate the long chapters that have four, five, six, 10, 14 sort of points. They cover a lot of material, but I also really like these chapters, and this does cover several Bible chapters. It covers um, the latter part of Exodus 12 and then 13, 14, 15. But what I really like is this is just all around the Exodus, the Exodus experience, the Exodus narrative. And I thought it was a pretty easy chapter. In fact, I, I'm going to hazard a guess that a significant number of us tonight, perhaps even a majority, I probably not a majority, but I think a significant number of us tonight will have the same word. Okay, I'm, pr I'm predicting that a lot of people are going to say, that's my word, that's my word, that's my word, that's my word, that's my word. Okay, so um, let's just read Exodus chapter 13, and I'm going to start reading in verse, I'm going to start reading, where am I going to start reading? Probably verse 17. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, we'll just read a little bit here, get heading into the the story. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. Now it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, perhaps the people will change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, because the Philistines were a war-like people, a warring people. And, you know, these people are not ready for a conflict. They're not ready for a battle. And so he's going to lead them on a way that... Um, Seems at first to be wiser, better, but it's going to turn out that it's going to seem to the Israelites at least to be not a good choice. Kind of like Google Maps. Sometimes it routes you this way, sometimes it routes you this way. And uh, you got to be careful about trusting Google Maps. There are numerous times where I have followed Google Maps and been lost. If you're in a city environment, no problem. But, but we got lost, and I won't bore you with the details of this story, but we were just Google mapping from the from coastal Norway, you know, up above the Arctic Circle, through Sweden, into Finland, right up near the Russian border. And uh, these were dirt roads, and we unwisely just put the town in, in uh, Hirkenes, which is in the far north of Norway. We went through Sweden and Finland to get there. And uh, we just like put it into Google Maps, and before you knew it, we were like on the back roads of the back roads of the back roads, roads rather, driving through Finland, and I thought, oh, this is, you know, great. And the mosquitoes are about the size of sparrows up there. It was in the summer, and uh, anyway, quite an adventure. So the children of Israel feel like, oh, we've been, we've been routed wrong, right? Right? Google has steered us wrong. God has steered us wrong. We're going the wrong way. But it looks here like God is actually thinking quite clearly about what he's doing. He leads them away from the Philistines. Verse 18, so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Wow, that's great stuff. We'll come back to that in just a second. For he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, quoting now Joseph, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here with you, end quote. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, 
or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Okay, then we get to chapter 14, and several times, three times in this chapter, it says again, our familiar refrain that we've seen in past chapters, not last chapter, but the one before, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, hardened Pharaoh's heart, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we've already dealt with that and saw that the way in which God is hardening Pharaoh's heart is not by turning, you know, the, the screws of his heart or of his mind or of his will. It's just by further revealing that he's more powerful, more real. I mean, he's real than all the gods of Egypt. And that revelation is causing Pharaoh not to be humbled and repentant and contrite, but to further double down on his obstinacy and stubbornness. And so it says that several times in the opening of chapter 14. Then you have this one, verse 5, Exodus chapter 14, verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. He's still mourning the loss of his firstborn, right? And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? Why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? In other words, this is just how ridiculous this is. This is how foolhardy they are. They literally look at one another and they say, man, we made a big mistake there. What, what were we thinking? Well, I'll give you 10 guesses, okay? I'll give you 10 guesses as to why you acquiesced to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and let Israel go, okay? Let, let, let me jog your memory. Blood, is, am I, is this... Is this Jogging anything? Okay, not the blood. How about frogs? Remember frogs? No, okay. Lice? Flies? Hail? Darkness? Death of the firstborn? Sickness on the cattle? Any of this? Is this jogging anything? Right? And so it just goes to show that the obstinacy here was not just, it was a supernatural obstinacy. Obstinate, obstinacy. How come I can't say that word? It was a supernatural obstinance. How about that? It was a supernatural obstinance because what's happening here is this is effectively the God of shepherds turned slaves that's more powerful than all of your gods, your pantheon of gods, right? The Nile God and the sun God and the frog God and all the various gods. And so it's embarrassing and it can't be. And, and one of the things that she talks about in this chapter is that one of the reasons that Israel pursues is that they're worried about their national reputation. Well, when you're worried about your national reputation, what you're also worried about is not just your sort of, you know, military reputation, your national reputation. You're worried about how your gods will be perceived because again, in the ancient world, if this clan conquers this clan or this tribe, this other tribe or this nation, this other nation, the idea is our god is stronger and our gods have beaten your gods, bested your gods. And so there's this concern about their national reputation and about the gods. Like, hey, we have to we have to do this for the honor of our gods. Of course, Yahweh has just shown, we talked about this, strategically when we had Hannah with us, love you, Hannah, she went down and showed us how every one of those plagues was targeted at a specific Egyptian deity. So their gods have been overturned, they've been humiliated, and now they're feeling that, and they look at one another and say, what? Wow, we made a big mistake there. This is a supernatural obstinacy. There we go. I think I said it right. I just, I wanted to circle back around and give myself a shot at that. Okay, it's supernatural. It's, it's demonic. It's satanic. It's irrational. It's ridiculous. And so they say, hey, we got to go pursue these guys. And I got a really cool observation about that. Now I'm in 
Patriarchs and Prophets, I'm there. Starting on page 334, 281 of the original. Let's do this. I love the first four words. With their loins girt. <laughs> I guarantee that nobody on any of the lives or that's watching YouTube right now has ever said that in their whole life, unless they were reading something like this. No one ever says, oh, did, did you go up there? Oh yeah, we went up there with our loins girt. That's a fun, I just like that. I just, it's funny to me. And if you don't know, the loin, of course, is the inner and upper part of the leg, right? The loins. And what would happen was when you were, when you were girding your loins or their loins girt in the past tense, or is that present tense, with their loins girt, um, what you're basically doing is you're, you're tying up your, what amounts to like a, a skirt or a robe, you're tying it up around your upper thighs so that you can move more quickly. Now, I've never tried it, but apparently running in a dress or running in a skirt is not easy, but if you pull that skirt up and you kind of tuck it between your legs and you tie it around your upper thigh, well, now you're ready to move and you're ready to move quickly. Right? So, so basically with their loins girt means with their clothes tied around their upper legs. I just, I don't know. I just, I like that. And with sandaled feet and staff in hand, the people of Israel had stood hushed, awed, and yet expectant, awaiting the royal mandate. That's why there couldn't be any leaven in the bread, remember? Because they have to be able to go right now. No waiting, no tarrying, no delaying, no hesitating. We got to go and we got to go now. And the leaven symbolized sin, not believing that God was going to do it, that it was going to do it tonight. Right? And so they're ready. They're waiting. They're hushed. They're expectant. Their loins are girt. Don't you love it? And then it says, before the morning broke, they were on their way. During the plagues, as the manifestation of God's power had kindled faith in the hearts of the bondmen, the slaves, it had struck terror in their oppressors. And I thought that's really cool. Same God, same plagues, same revelation. And among one class of people, it kindles faith. And that very same revelation among another class um, strikes terror. Very interesting, right? Same God, same actions, but striking terror among some and kindling faith among others. She continues, the Israelites had gradually assembled themselves in Goshen. Notwithstanding the suddenness of their flight, some provision had already been made for the necessary organization, et cetera, et cetera, so they could go out in companies, right? You don't, don't just have this mass of people, you know, just racing out and trampling. No, they went out in an orderly fashion. Then, and this is crucial, crucial, and it really ties in nicely with what we talked about yesterday. By the way, I loved yesterday's session, like 10 out of 10, in my opinion. I was so, I was just like on fire in yesterday's session, and I loved what Reiner brought to the table, and man, I just love the idea that Israel is the elder brother of the world, and that, that God does not make a distinction between Though it's not an ethnic distinction, it's not a racial distinction, it's not a linguistic or a geographical distinction, it's a distinction of belief, a distinction of trust, a distinction of faith, and we're going to see that. Look at the second paragraph. And they went out about 600,000 men on foot, besides children, a mixed multitude, went up with them also. In this multitude were not only those who were actuated by faith in the God of Israel. So she's saying, not only those who were actuated by the faith in God. In other words, some of the non-Israelites that went were following along because they were, to quote, actuated by faith in the God of Israel. She says, but there were others, now watch this, a far greater number who desired only to escape from the plagues. Well, fair enough, right? That's a reasonable desire. Um, or who followed in the wake of the moving multitudes merely from excitement and curiosity even. 
right? A crowd attracts a crowd. You got this mob mentality. Hundreds of thousands of people are all heading in one direction. And a lot of people, I mean, at this point, Israel has been ravaged by the plagues. And so they're like, we're out of here too. Many of these people were just, they were just the kind of people that follow, you know, you see this with any sort of protest or riot or there's people that are there to do the thing. And then there's people that are just there to make trouble or to see what's going on or to agitate. So you had some of those people, these agitators that travel along with Israel and with the Egyptians who, to quote again, had faith in the God of Israel. She then says, this class, the mixed multitude, were ever a hindrance and a snare to Israel. But be clear in your mind, be very clear in your mind, when she says this class were ever a hindrance and a snare to Israel, she's not talking about the Egyptians because some of the Egyptians were those that were exercising a genuine and legitimate faith in the God of Israel. Those people weren't trouble. The people that were trouble were those people that are always trouble in any large public gathering. In fact, I just went to, uh, it wasn't that long ago, I went to a basketball game. And 90%, 95% of the people that were at the basketball game are just enjoying the game and they're cheering or whatever. But there was this one guy, like two seats behind us, who was obnoxious. And uh, he had to be escorted out. He actually was very, he should be thanking God that he got escorted out because he was about ready to be escorted out of consci consciousness by some people that were around him because he was cheering for the other team and uh, the, the non-home team, and he was about ready to be escorted out of his own consciousness. And the point is, whenever you get a big crowd, there's always going to be some ne'er-do-wells, right? There's always going to be some droogs that are going to show up and create problems. Well, that's happening here as well, okay? But don't confuse this with an ethnic, a hard ethnic distinction. We've already noted that yesterday and then again today, okay? So some of those Egyptians that are going out, they're like, hey, we're done with all these gods. These gods have been humiliated. These gods have been upended. These gods have been shown up. We're going with the living God. We're going with that God, okay? Amazing. So then she says, as they went out, they went and took, and we already noted this, some of the spoils, she calls them spoils. I think there's actually a better word. I think they were just um, unremitted wages. I think these were their rightful wages. I mean, slave labor is, of course, not only illegal, it's immoral, it's unethical, it, it is contrary. We all know intuitively that it's contrary to human nature, right, to bind a person and make them do something against their own will and volition. So all they were doing was just taking back what was already theirs. And so they go out. And, and apparently the Egyptians were happy to hand it over. Whatever, just get out, go away. We don't want any more of you. Then she says, as this was happening, this was a direct fulfillment of Genesis 15, where God had appeared just after the covenant, the covenant cutting ceremony in Genesis 15, 1 to 12. Remember, God put Abraham into a deep sleep and said, this isn't going to happen this Descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while. And so he put him into this deep sleep, and he saw that his descendants would be strangers in a strange land. But remember, we've already talked about this. They weren't slaves for 400 years. They were slaves for somewhere between 140 and 200 years, right? Somewhere around that 144, 145, 150, somewhere in there. We can't be exactly precise. But the 400 years begins from the time of the covenant with Abraham until this very moment. This is the thing, right? Prophecy is being fulfilled here. God had said this would happen, and now it's happening. By the way, Abraham had told Isaac, Isaac had told Jacob, Jacob had told Joseph, and so Joseph said, do not leave my bones here. 
I know the, the, the Abrahamic promise is sure God is going to visit you and do not leave my bones in Egypt. Those bones were, a she says, were a reminder of Israel's deliverance. And I love what the Bible says. It says that Moses brought them up, which I think is particularly cool. I mean, I don't know if he like literally had a bag or a satchel or a backpack of some sort with, he's got, his, you know, he's got everything he needs, right? He's got a staff, he's got all this stuff, and he's carrying jo Joseph's bones. That's just too cool. That is just too cool. And we talked yesterday about Passover as a, a memorial and as typical, as pointing backward and forward, pointing, looking back and also pointing, well, Joseph's bones, pointed backward to the Abrahamic promise and forward to deliverance. Don't leave my bones here. Remembering the Abrahamic promise, right? The vision in Genesis 15, take me out of here. So cool. So very cool. Okay, bottom of page um, 335. 282 of the original, it says, they, the Israelites were poorly prepared for an encounter with that powerful and warlike people, the Philistines. They had little knowledge of God and little faith in him. Okay, this is great. She just said the Israelites had little knowledge and little faith. This actually makes the point that I was making yesterday, that the Passover was such a minimal requirement of exercising faith. God basically says, have a meal. Have a meal late in the evening, and here are a few key details. Um, number one, eat the lamb with bitter herbs. Check, that's not hard. Uh, number two, take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost with a branch of hyssop. Well, that's not hard. And then number, number three, when you bake the bread, don't put leaven in it. Okay, and now this giant mob is all walking out. I mean, eat a big meal and follow the crowd is not exactly an onerous request, right? It's not, it's not like God isn't, he's making it as easy as possible, which is why when we get to Sinai and God gives his law, he's going to say this, I am Yahweh, your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage on, as on eagle's wings. God is, God is not requiring them to do something that's difficult, onerous, complicated. Now, eat a meal, Walk with everybody else. Get in that big line and walk after you've eaten your meal and done those little details that we just described. Okay, she describes them as having little knowledge and little faith. Okay, friends, let that be a promise to you. Let that be a promise to you. All you have to have is little knowledge and little faith to go to follow Jehovah. You don't have to have lots of knowledge and lots of faith to follow Jehovah. No, you do not. Now, 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 in the following in the going is the growing. That's true. In the going is the growing, and in the following is the faith. So your knowledge will increase and your faith will increase, but in order to start this journey, oh, you just need a tiny little bit, a little bit, right? Jesus said as much. If you just have faith as a grain of mustard seed, these people are not giants of the faith. Many of them have been compromising with idolatry, Many, they've not been keeping the Sabbath because it was becoming complicated for them to do so, and the knowledge of God had been largely lost. So they have little knowledge and little faith, and yet God is still leading them. Friends, feel that. You don't have to have great knowledge and great faith to start a journey with Yahweh. Now, in the going, there will be growing, and in the following, your faith will increase. True. But you don't need to have this cachet of, you know, spiritual 
excellence and power and pedigree in order to start a journey with Yahweh. No, not at all. You can have a backpack on your back and know almost nothing except that a bunch of other people are going that way and they're all following Yahweh and you're just going to get in line. Hallelujah. Okay, not hard. Not hard. Um, so then she spends uh, page 336. She spends some time talking about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And she brings out some really cool points, quoting the Psalms, Psalm 105 and Isaiah 4, verses 5 and 6, that the fire provided warmth and light. That's cool. And then the pillar of, of sort of smoke or vapor in the day provided shade and moisture. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a really hot climate. They do this a lot in Europe, but sometimes you'll go, and I think they do it sometimes in the U.S. as well, but I see it a lot in Europe. You're eating at an outdoor restaurant, and it's hot, and you're kind of under like maybe a little canopy, and then they have these hoses that go all around that shoot off this very light mist, almost an aerosolized mist, and it just touches you, and as soon as it touches you, you get that sort of refrigerative effect, and it just feels amazing. That's really cool. That's, kind, that's part of what the pillar of moisture or vapor in the day was doing. It was not only providing shade, it was like sending out this continual mist. In other words, these people are flying first class. They're, like God is taking care of them, right? Like they're not at the back of the bus. God is taking care of them, man. I like that. And so she talks a little bit about that. Then I thought this was really cool. Bottom of page 336. She says that in the hearts of some, this fear about the potential pursuit of the Egyptians, or I should say pursuit by the Egyptians, began to arise. Oh, what if the Egyptians came? And sure enough, not long after that you know, fear is thought of, it actualizes, it materializes. And this is so cool. Did, you, did anybody else pick up on this? that this is just like Jacob. Remember, Jacob is the very one who will have his name changed to Israel. Here we have the nation of Israel, the descendants of the tribes of Israel, fleeing as fugitives and outcasts and exiles, afraid of being pursued. That's the very thing that happened twice to Jacob when he fled from Esau, right, heading to the land of Laban. He was afraid that he would be pursued by his skillful hunter brother Esau. And then when he fled from the land of Laban back to his homeland, he actually was pursued by Laban. And so I thought that's a fascinating little detail that just as the individual, Jacob, was fearful of pursuit or actually pursued on his two flights when he was a fugitive and an exile and an outcast, here, the very thing. So what happened individually is now happening collectively. Very cool. Um, so they're being pursued. And uh, this is now I'm on page 337. This is where she spends some time talking about how the, Isra uh, the Egyptians, rather, were like, hey, we got to pursue the Israelites because this is really bad for our reputation. Right? I'll read right in the middle of the page. The Egyptians feared lest their forced submission to the God of Israel should subject them to the derision of the other nations. But if they would now go forth in a great show of power and bring back the fugitives, ah, there's our word, they would redeem their glory as well as recover the service of their bondmen or the slaves. Okay, and I just had this thought. People will do some seriously stupid things to save their reputation. <laughs> and this is a seriously stupid thing, right? In their little council, they're all looking at one another befuddled, confused, 
and, and just trying to, why did, why did we let the Israelites go? Okay, short-term memory loss, right? Amnesia, I'll tell you why you let them go. Here's 10 reasons why you let them go, right? And you're about ready to have an 11th from which you will not recover. So this to me is a little lesson. And I've said this before many times, but here's another great example. Don't worry about your reputation. What other people think of you is not really your business. That's their business, right? You just do you, and I don't mean to do so in an obnoxious or a stubborn way, but you just love people and love God and be kind. And if people think you're A, B, C, D, E, F, or G, and what they think is inaccurate, that's not really your business. You know, haters gonna hate, as they say. And uh, not everybody's a hater, of course, and not everybody has haters. But the idea that you have to come to the defense of your reputation, no, you don't. And I've seen people, I myself, have on occasion done stupid things in order to preserve my reputation in the eyes of others. And every time I look back and I think, that was so stupid. Why am I, in some cases, casting my pearls before swine? Like, what these people think of me is not going to be changed by anything that I'm going to do. And when I actually play into their hatred of me or what I'm doing or something I'm standing for, it gives them kind of a satisfaction. Like, oh, we got to rise out of him. And so I just want to say, it's not an exact application, but I think it's a, a good lesson here for all of us. People will do really unwise, really stupid, really unthoughtful things in order to not look foolish. But you're going to end up looking a lot more foolish. Your reputation is God's business. Leave it with him. Amen. So now the Egyptian armies are encroaching and the dust is flying up. And, and most of the people, she says, were complaining to Moses or about Moses. But she says, a few cried out to the Lord. Okay, good. They're crying out to the Lord. And uh, top of page 338 and uh, 280. I'm not exactly sure what page it is. Uh, the paragraph begins, Moses was greatly troubled. Moses was greatly troubled that this people should manifest so little faith in God. Well, I mean, Moses here, listen, his expectations are reasonable, but they're also, you know, his, his expectations are doomed to be dashed because just moments ago, I read you that they had little knowledge and little faith. They had little knowledge of God and little faith in him. Well, in the, you know, 48 hours that have transpired or the 24 hours that have transpired since they left, they didn't suddenly grow faith. They still have little faith. Now, in, in fairness, Moses is beside themselves about their little faith. They should have known better. I mean, they have had several weeks, no doubt, or at least a couple weeks as the plagues have fell in rapid succession to sort of increase their faith. But nevertheless, Moses is astonished at their lack of faith. But I love this part. Moses has no lack of faith. Are you ready for this? Okay, I got to read this. Uh, same page, uh, same paragraph, top of the page. Um, true, there was no possibility of deliverance unless God himself should interpose for their release. But having been brought into this position in obedience to the divine direction, watch this. Moses felt no fear of the consequences. Underline it, highlight it, circle it. Friends, that's how we should be. If God has led us, okay, this is key. If God has led you here, and then he led you here, and then he led you here, and in an attitude of prayer and humility before God, God has led you to a place, and then it looks like a really bad thing is going to happen. You are full well within your divine rights. You are full well within your God-given right to not be afraid in that moment. 
I mean, and, and this is just so boss. This is such a boss move, right? Like Moses is literally excited to see what's going to happen. There is not a molecule of fear in Moses. There's not a gram of fear in Moses. Everybody around him is afraid. We've already talked a little bit about this, I think, in a few sessions. We were talking about the COVID pandemic, and I was saying that there are studies that show that people that are a little bit afraid when they're by themselves actually get more afraid if they're in a group of people that are afraid because you have the expectation that, hey, I should be afraid, and then it creates this, and everybody's afraid, and it starts bouncing off. So Moses is in this crowd of people that are largely terrified of what's about ready to happen. They think they're going to be slain. And Moses, no fear. Moses felt no fear of the consequences. Why not? Well, because he knew that God had led them this far. If God has brought us here and it looks like a terrible thing is about ready to happen, well, then God's got it figured out. I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. And we can have that same confidence. If we have been following God step by step to a place that he has led us, and then all of a sudden it looks like the world's going to come collapsing in on us, we are within our God-given rights to boldly stand fearlessly in the face of adversity. Hallelujah. In fact, he says to them, do not be afraid. And then I like this, stand still. Because she says that actually what was happening was is that the, their, their deluded minds, they were becoming agitated and even violent toward one another. And Moses basically puts all of Israel in timeout. He's like, all right, you're all in timeout. Stand still. Put your nose in the corner, right? <laughs> God's going to do something, and your agitation, and this is just a great point, your agitation about a situation of perceived impending doom doesn't change the situation. So you might as well stand there like a man or stand there like a woman, a woman of God, a man of God, and say, God has led me here, and God's going to pull this off. I don't know how he's going to pull it off, but he's going to pull it off. God's going to do a thing. God brought me here. I'm penned in. I'm hemmed in. I'm painted into a corner. God's got this. And so he says, don't be afraid. The wonderful pillar of cloud had been followed as a signal of God to go forward. But now they question among themselves if it might not foreshadow some great calamity. The very thing that was a blessing to them, they thought, oh no, maybe this is a portent of some terrible disaster that's about ready to come upon us. She says to their deluded minds, it looked like a harbinger of disaster. So they go to Moses and say, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? And then Moses says, why do you cry to me? Or Moses goes to God. Hey, he says, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. What? There's a mountain on this side. There's an impassable you know, ravine or, or mountain pass of some other kind on the other side. The Egyptians are behind us and the, there's water in front of us. And God's command is go forward. That's right. God's command is go forward. Because all of his biddings are enablings. If God tells you to do something that seems impossible, do it. If God lays a burden, a ministry, an idea, a notion on your heart that only God could pull off, well, then go forward. Go forward. In fact, I think our dreams and our visions about what God is calling us in our individual circumstances, situations, families, and lives to do if those things are things that we can accomplish, then it doesn't require a lot of faith in God. Well, you got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need God for this. You've got this. But if it's a little too big, a little too ambitious, a little too scary, well, then now God has to show up. 
right? And there's the old saying, and I think there's a lot of truth in it. If you, if you aim for the stars and you only get to the moon, well, at least you got to the moon, right? If, you're, if your dream or your vision is this big, if it's huge, if it's gigantic, and you don't get that, but you only get this, well, at least you get this, right? Try to dream a dream or have a vision or start a ministry or come up with some service project, something that requires you to believe that God will come through for you, right? Many times in my life and in my ministry, I have started things or done things that I thought, I don't think I can do this. God, you're going to need to partner with me and take the lion's share of this, or it's just not going to happen. And then God shows up. So Moses is like, settle down, stand still. God is going to do this. Walk forward. And I imagine they're like, what? Did he say go forward? I think he said go forward. Because you can't go to the right and you can't go to the left, and you're certainly not going to go backward. And then she has these, she quotes here from Psalm 77, beautiful passages. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. Your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Friends, God's got this. I don't know what this is in your life. I know what the this is in my life. I got a lot of thises in my life. And I got to remember, God's got this, and God's got this, and God's got this, and God's got this. And in my moments of terror, and in my moments of doubt and confusion, God says to me and to you, go forward. <laughs> go forward? Yeah, but, but God, there is no way forward. Go forward. Go forward. Okay, next page, 340. We are motoring. We're motoring. Next, uh, top of page 340. Um, oh, I just thought this was so great. Uh, the Egyptians were seized with confusion and dismay amid the wrath of the elements in which they had heard the voice of an angry God. They endeavored to retrace their steps and to flee the shore, flee to the shore they had quitted. They had just left because they're pursuing Israel now through the Red Sea that's like opened up and a pathway on dry ground has been created by God's supernatural power. So they try to follow, but Moses stretched out his rod and the piled up waters, this is a scene here, hissing and roaring and eager for their prey. Whoa, whoa, that's strong language. She says, and they heard the voice of an angry God and the hissing, roaring waves were eager for their prey, swallowed the Egyptian army in their black depths. Now, some people are not going to like this. In real talk here, some people are going to go, you know, I I don't like this. I don't like the idea of God drowning thousands of people. Well, I'm sorry you don't like it. I like it. I don't like the fact that people died. I don't like the fact that people are rebellious and obstinate, but you know what I like? I like it when cruel, oppressive, satanic, demonic, hurtful, harmful, terrible, incorrigible people that have been harming and hurting other people, abusing other people, killing other people, I don't mind it at all when those people get their just desserts, as long as it's coming from the hand of God and not from my hand. I'm not in a position to read the heart of somebody and say, oh, all right, time for judgment on you, but I'm totally happy when God executes an act of judgment. God knows the situation not just intimately, he knows the situation perfectly, right? And, and some people are uncomfortable with an angry God, but friends, 
What are we going to do if God's not angry about sin? Don't you get angry at injustice? I remember when I was a, a, in my late teens, I read a book that shaped very much the rest of my life. I read a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, right? An Indian History of the American West by D. Brown. And it made me so angry. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I was so mad at the injustice, at the exploitation, at the broken promises. I was so angry. This is before I was a Christian. And I was like, somebody needs to pay. This is not okay. Now, friends, if a 19-year-old purple-haired punk rock kid can be angry at injustice, can be aroused at cruelty, can, can have a fire in his bones over cruelty and injustice and oppression to other people, what does the infinite, illimitably holy God feel when he alone sees, he alone is capacitated to see how great is the cost of injustice, how tragic is the loss, the unnecessary loss of a life. And so if you hear about an abuse case, are you not angry? I have a very close friend of mine who was seriously abused by a person for a, for a large part of their life, sexually abused. And I am very angry about that. And I want that abuser to be brought to justice. Now, unfortunately, he never was. He died a free man. He should have been rotting in a jail cell. Now, he can go to a jail cell and a jail cell and he can confess and he can get his life turned around and he can ask for forgiveness. I got no problem with that. But we should be angry at rape. We should be angry at oppression. We should be angry at abuse. We should be angry at injustice. We want a God who's angry at things that hurt people. Amen. I'm saying amen to my own sermon here. Okay, next paragraph, there's this great line there where she says, for the most, from the most terrible peril, one might have, one night had brought complete deliverance. And then this, that vast, helpless throng Bondmen unused to battle, women, children, and cattle with the sea before them, and the mighty armies of Egypt pressing behind them had seen their path opened through the waters and their enemies overwhelmed in the moment of expect expected triumph. Jehovah alone had brought them deliverance. Underline it. Jehovah alone had brought them deliverance. All they could do was believe that he would do it, eat the meal, put the blood on the doorpost, and follow the crowd. That's it. That's it. They can't split the water open. They can't slay the Egyptian armies. They can't remove the mountain to the right or to the left. All they can do is trust and believe and go forward. That's all we can do, friends. And then this. In that, I just read it a moment ago, she refers to them as that vast, helpless throng. Friends, that's us. I mean, underline that. That's you and I. That's the whole world. I, I wrote here, us, humanity. The vast, helpless throng, that's us. That's every person you have ever known and every person on the earth that you don't know. We are all a vast, helpless throng, and every one of us needs a deliverance that Jehovah alone can deliver, that Jehovah alone can actualize. Then they get on the other side, and we've seen this several times now. Bam! Spontaneous worship. And Miriam sings this beautiful song, the song of Moses. 
I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Right? They're singing this song while they're seeing the bodies of the dead soldiers that they were so terrified of just hours before washing up on the sea. I mean, Yahweh can be trusted. Yahweh can be followed. Yahweh can be believed. And they just break out in spontaneous worship and praise. I love this story. Now, I'll say one thing about this. Years ago, I preached a sermon called Singing Saints. And I contrast this story with the story of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat had heard, I won't go into all the details, but Jehoshaphat knew that there was an army that was encroaching and it looked like certain doom for him and his people. And so he did a remarkable thing. He took the choir, the singers of Israel, and he put them at the front of the army and they went forward singing, anticipating victory. That's awesome. Okay, what's happening here is the singing comes after the victory is achieved and the deliverance is realized. And here's my point. This is my sermon point. And I think it's a great point. Friends, it's fine, totally fine to sing after God has come through. Amen and amen. But you know what's even better? You know what's even better than that? To sing before he has come through. To sing in anticipation of him coming through. In fact, you can sing both. But when we only sing after, when we only give God praise when the bodies of our enemies are washing up on the shore of the sea, this takes no faith. This requires no special confidence in Yahweh. It's done. I mean, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that, that, that hope is what's not seen. If it's seen, it doesn't require any hope. It doesn't require any faith. It doesn't require any trust in Yahweh. And so, yes, let's sing after the deliverance, but let's train our minds and our brains and our families and our churches to sing before, to sing in anticipation of what God is going to do. And I think God is glorified even more when we sing in anticipation of what he will do rather than only in memorial of what he has done. Come on now, are you feeling me? You! And then she says at the bottom of that page that this song does not belong to Israel alone. It points forward to the destruction of all the foes of righteousness and the final victory of the Israel of God. Because at the end, right, when all of the redeemed are standing on the sea of glass, the glassy sea, they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Come on now. We should be singing that song today. We should be singing today in anticipation that God is going to come through in your life. God is going to come through in my life. God's going to come through in the life of my children. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to praise him because let's, let's see this. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. You're praising God in anticipation of a deliverance and the deliverance doesn't come exactly like you thought it would. The breakthrough doesn't come exactly like you thought it would. Well, what's the worst case scenario? You are still giving praises to Yahweh. Is there anything better to be doing in a time of difficulty or trial or adversity than giving praises to Yahweh? I mean, what's the worst case scenario here? God still comes through in his own way, in his own time, not always as we anticipate, but we're singing from start to finish. Okay, last two pages here. Um, she refers to these beautifully as songs of deliverance. She says that God is going to do for us a deliverance greater than that of the Hebrews at the Red Sea. Amen. 
That's the deliverance from sin. It's the deliverance from this, from addiction, the deliverance from unkindness, the deliverance from selfishness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's even better than God. Friends, friends, for God to move molecules of water and create a dry path through, that's cool. That's amazing. But it's easier for God to move molecules of water, even giant bodies of water, than it is for him to move the human heart. Moving the human heart is a whole different kettle of fish. It's a whole, it's a whole different thing and a far more difficult thing because water doesn't have a will of its own. Water's going to do whatever Yahweh tells it to do. But the human heart, right, capable of both worship and loyalty and rebellion and disobedience, we can resist what Yahweh is trying to do. So the deliverance of us from sin and from bondage and from oppression, that's an even greater deliverance, she says, an even greater deliverance. Okay, uh, middle of page 342, 289. What compassion, what matchless love has God shown to us? Amen. Lost sinners in connecting us with himself to be to him a special treasure. What a sacrifice has been made by our Redeemer. Note it and note it well. She does not say, what a sacrifice has been made to our Redeemer. You should write in your margin, by, not to. Friends, we don't make a great sacrifice. You don't make a great sacrifice to God. You recognize that a great sacrifice is made by God. We've already seen this on Mount Moriah, but I love the fact that she says that here. What compassion, what matchless love has God shown to us, lost sinners, in connecting us with himself to be to him a special treasure? Then she puts an exclamation point. And then, what a sacrifice has been made by our Redeemer, not to, because the volume of the sacrifice, the size of the sacrifice, is not what we have done or what we do. It's what God has done in Christ for us and as us. Last page. Um, she says that when they advanced, when they went forward, they showed that they believed. And then the mighty one of Israel showed up in a powerful way. And then this really great point. She says that the imagination pictures impending ruin. And uh, this is one of my favorite things that my good friend and partner in ministry, uh, Ty Gibson, likes to say. He says, worry is a misuse of the imagination. Worry is a misuse of the imagination. Because you're worried about the future. Jesus talks about this expressly in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we don't know what the future holds. None of us do. So what we're doing when we're worrying about the future is we're imagining a scenario. And, and Ty says, and I agree with him on this, well, if you're going to use your imagination to imagine a future scenario, well, then don't worry a really, don't imagine a really bad and worrisome future. Imagine that God comes through in a powerful way and everything turns out all right. Imagine that. She says here, the imagination pictures impending ruin before and bondage or death behind, yet the voice of God speaks clearly, go forward. Every time you're tempted to worry, just remind yourself that you're using your imagination to picture in advance, almost prophetically, a bad outcome. Well, just use that same energy. It doesn't take any more energy. 
to use that same imagination to imagine in advance a really great outcome, that God comes through, that it all turns out okay, or even if it doesn't all turn out okay, that it's not a total catastrophe. And then in a worst case scenario, worst thing that could ever happen is something really bad happens and you die. Great news, everybody. Great news, everybody. God is not going to leave your bones in Egypt. <laughs> Think about that. In the worst case scenario, your bones are going to be carried out of Egypt, out of this world. Amen? I mean, right? So imagination pictures impending ruin, don't do that. When you're in a tight spot, when you're in a tough spot, when it looks like, man, I'm not sure this is going to end well, and you're starting to use your imagination and you're creating anxiety and unnecessary fear and worry, well, just use that very same imagination that you obviously have and imagine that things are going to be okay. Or even if not that they're going to be okay right now, that they will be okay eventually. Remember when Violetta was on? Remember when Violetta was here? My beautiful little Violetta sat right next to me and she said so beautifully, so wonderfully, one of her points in her rubric was, God will make everything all right, but maybe not right away. God's going to make it right. Maybe not right away, but God will make it right. Okay, let's do our rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. What a great chapter. What's the point of this chapter? I wrote to tell the amazing story of God's strong deliverance of his people, Israelites and Egyptians alike. Don't forget, some of those Egyptians put faith in the God of the Hebrews. Deliverance from idolatry, superstition, and in the case of Israel, from slavery. Amen. And this anticipates a greater deliverance, our own deliverance from the bondage of sin and the fear of death. Number two, what do we learn about the person of God? God hates cruelty, he hates oppression, and he hates slavery. He hates it. He's angry at it. He doesn't always lead like we would hope or expect, but God can be trusted, he can be followed, he can be loved, and he can be worshipped. Here's a great idea. Let's not only sing after, let's teach our, let's train our brains and train our families to sing in advance of the deliverance. Amen. How do we pray this chapter? Father, teach me to go forward at your call and at your word. May I learn to trust when I'm tempted to doubt and fear and cower. Amen. Go forward. How do we practice this chapter? I wrote forward, forward, forward with Jesus and his kingdom, away from idols and away from immorality. Also, don't go it alone. Go with the large crowd of people that love and trust God. Get in line. Just get in that line. There's a whole lot of people that are walking with Jesus. There's a whole lot of people that are following Yahweh. Get in that line. Surround yourself with people that are going in the same direction that you want to go. And, and get in that crowd. Get in that community a local church community, an online community, uh, a, a larger sort of uh, denominational community, and go with Jesus, right? Go with a crowd. Go with everybody. There's a whole lot of us that are walking that way. Amen. And then finally, what's the promise? You know what my promise is? 
God is not going to leave my bones in Egypt. I'm claiming Joseph's promise. I'm claiming that promise. That if I should die, right, if I don't have the the blessed privilege to be among those that are translated at the return of our Lord, and right, I'm 49 years old now. I mean, I'm already, most of my life is lived already, right? It's a little scary. Have you ever seen these life calendars? You you go to a a life calendar and it has a dot for every week of your life, right? For every week of your life. In fact, I was just talking to Anthony Bosman about this the other day. And he said, I guess this is right. He's a mathematician. He said that your life is made up, I think, of 10 billion seconds. I think this is right. 10 billion seconds. So your life is kind of broken up into average lifespan, I guess. So your life is kind of broke up into three groups of 3 billion seconds, right? Like the first 30 or the first 28 years or 30 years, and then the next 28 or 30 years, and then the last. So you're somewhere in your mid-80s, right? If you're living healthfully and well, right? So there's a, most of my life is behind me. I'm still holding out hope against hope that I will be among those that are translated at the return of Jesus. That would be incredible. But in the statistically likely event that I die, my promise is God's not going to leave my bones in Egypt. He will carry me up, body, mind, and soul, to be to meet Jesus in the clouds. And how does the, how does Paul say it there in First Thessalonians? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's my promise, because Jesus is alive, friends. He is risen. All right, it's easy to guess what my word is. It okay? So Cassandra says my granddad's ninety nine. Don't be so sure. Okay, fair enough. If I lived again what I have lived up to this point, I I would make it to 98. Okay, what's your word? What's your word? What's your word? Hey, what was that, Victor? I want to read that. You say, my mom passed four months ago, but her bones won't stay in Egypt. Hallelujah. We're nearing home. Lord Jesus, come. Amen, Victor. I'm so sorry to hear about the passing of your mother. Okay, what were our words? Ooh, Naomi says C, S-E-E, and S-E-A. God chose the C so that they could see the one true God. Love it. That's not my word, but I love it. Deliverance, deliverance. Okay, maybe I was wrong about this. Deliverance. Okay, comma, there we go. Forward, that's my word. I I assume that would be a lot of people's word. Man, a lot of deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. Sing, sing is another great word. Reiner says forward, difference, baptize. Oh, baptize, I see what you did there, Bob. You went New Testament. Safe, obedience, forward. Hannah, same word, remembered. Ooh, path, Karen. Bye, great. I love that, Dino. Uh, Forward, forward, forward. Freedom, says Nicolina92. Chuck Baby says forward. Victor, I can't do it. Bro, we need to hang out. I need to come to New York. We need to hang out. Johnny was telling me you're a great guy. Frank says forward. Move, hope, follow, still, alone. Path. Step. Okay, so there were a lot of forwards. (laughs) Hannah always wants that second word. Go, path, presence. Go, forgetful, mercy, go. Okay, go is cool because go is kind of the first half of forward. Salvation. Scott says delivered. Glenn says salvation. DFW Adventures says elevate, elevate. I like it. I'm a climber. I love to elevate. Believe, praise, Go forward on the path to victory. Five times in this chapter, she uses the word forward. 
Obviously, the text itself says, go forward. That's what Moses was told uh, by God to tell the people, go forward. But she uses some synonyms for forward as well. She says, advance twice. She says, pressing on once and forth to go forth, which is just another way of saying forward. So if you add them all up, it's nine times that she uses either the word forward or a synonym for forward. So forward with Jesus, forward with Jesus. Listen, friends, the world is getting darker. It's only going to get darker and darker still. There are not a lot of places that you can look in the world today and feel optimistic, right? Now, there are individual circumstances and situations on the micro level, in the local level. I mean, great things are happening everywhere, right? There, there's, there's, the world is populated by many millions upon millions upon millions of beautiful people, right? There's lots of great people out there, and so there's going to be instances of really great things happening, largely in local situations. But on the whole, the Bible says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, right? Jesus talks about the love of many growing cold. We live in a world right now that is becoming increasingly artificial, increasingly despairing, increasingly nihilistic, increasingly absurd, increasingly post-Christian, post-biblical, post-truth. And so what does Jesus say to us? He says, look, the whole thing, the whole thing down here is, is going to go to hell in a handbasket, like literally. The angels are holding back the winds of strife, the, the, the winds of strife. But if we go forward with Jesus, we can start singing today the songs that anticipate that God will not leave us in slavery. He will not leave us in sin. He will not leave us in bondage. And if we should die in the meantime, he will not leave our bones in Egypt. And it doesn't require a lot of faith to get on this gospel train, to get on this Yahweh train. Remember, they had little knowledge and little faith. So little faith that Moses was astonished at how little faith they had. And you know what? They were still in God's community. They were still in God's caravan. And they were still on their way to the promised land. Amen and amen and amen. I love you all. We will see you tomorrow night, uh, chapter 26, with Sylvia Bakioki. She'll be sitting right next to me. I can't wait for that. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, teach us how to go forward how to go forward in faith, and to remember that in the going is the growing, and in the forward momentum is the faith-building reality, the faith-building experiences that take us from glory to glory and faith to faith. And so, Father, forgive us where we have used our imagination to imagine the worst possible outcome, a terrible scenario. Father, teach us how to put our faith and our trust in you and to imagine, wait a minute, God's got this. If God can do this that we've just read here in chapter 25, well, then God can do this. Father, whatever the this is that we're facing in our lives that, that I need help with and that the others need help with, Father, help us to remind ourselves and to believe and to sing, God's got this. God's got this. God's got this. Father, we love you and thank you in the powerful, saving, delivering name of Jesus. Forward we go. Amen.